Tonight I'd like to speak about something that could be a very radical uh, subject in our culture, uh, something that we can practice when we go home, and that is renunciation. And so this talk is about the happiness of renunciation. I've coupled it with the practice of the paramis, those forces of the mind and the heart that actually lead us, that guide us, that support us to liberation. So before I go into the particulars, I want to talk about why it's so important that we take this understanding of renunciation and see how we can practice it in our lives when we go home. We've been so immersed here in this protective environment in this culture and community of the Dhamma, where the silence, the simplicity, and just this way of life, the schedule that we have, has uh, helped us to feel like we're in a place of safety. We're protected by our respect for each other through the agreements that we remind ourselves of every morning when the precepts are offered and we take the precepts. We're protected by the shared practices that we do here, uh, mainly the practice of mindful awareness, where we come to understand what's going on in our minds and hearts uh, moment by moment, where we can bring that uh, mindfulness to it so that we come closer to it. And at the same time, we realize the impermanent nature of everything that's happening. We're protected by the practices of loving-kindness and equanimity that we've been doing every day, every afternoon. So all of these practices, including the the respect for one another through the precepts, uh, the taking refuge, they're all helping us to lead a life of goodness, to touch into the strengths, the innate strengths of our minds and hearts and bring us to a deepening understanding of who we are or who we are not and that relationship, that new relationship that we can make with ourselves and with the world. And now tomorrow we're all going into a different world to the greater community of our families, of uh, our immediate community and our jobs, uh, the schools that we go to. And we really need to continue to stay in touch with these practices, with the inner resources that we have learned to touch base with here over and over and over again. Even though we will be immersed in this greater stream of the world, uh, we may, and, and we may take the practices home with us, we may feel that we're swimming upstream, flowing against the stream, as um, sometimes the Buddha says that being on this path is like swimming upstream, because everyone else around us could, it could feel like they're going in a different direction. I often uh, have to remember after a retreat that if I take care of the Dhamma, 
the Dhamma in my heart, then the Dhamma will protect me too, will protect those around me if I can, if I can protect it in my heart. So that understanding of, deep understanding of knowing that I'm really, really safe when I do the practice. I'm really, really safe when I touch base with the precepts every day, when I take the refuge of understanding deeply that uh, my deep intention in life is to know that this mind and heart, this, and in this very life, there's a possibility for liberation, just like in the Buddha's life, that uh, taking refuge in the Dhamma every day helps me to understand and really feel the safety of knowing the truth, being in the truth, living the truth, taking refuge in the Sangha every day. Uh, Maybe it's not formally, like I say the chant every morning, it may not be that, but it's just the constant recognition every day that there are many of those who are living today and those who have lived before that have realized the truth and um, connecting with those beings kind of in my heart, in my life, in my daily life, and seeing the potential of that also in every being. But how do we do that in a culture where there is a lot said and done about the pursuit of happiness that's very different from the kind of pursuit of happiness that Uh, we are learning to be more and more engaged in. In the society that we live in, this pursuit of happiness usually involves attaining, acquiring, getting, whether it's material goods, um, social status, prestige. And while some of it, of course, is for the benefit of all beings, some, some of it is done in a very wholesome way, and helping others, helping oneself. Not all of it is wholesome. It's, it's disappointing, it's frustrating to read, to look around one and to see just in, for example, the New York Times, which I love to read when I can on Sundays, that most of the, that newspaper is devoted to advertisements where the quest for gratification in various ways is glorified in a way. So I'm not saying that anything's wrong with this. It's the way of the world, and it's what we live in. And it's also very challenging to live in this kind of world where the the quest for happiness is not towards uh, the end of suffering or deep peace in one's heart or living more in simplicity. The quest for happiness is in the opposite direction. We all can see, just through our practice here, the power of clinging, the power of wanting, the power of craving, and uh, that how our minds go to that over and over again, or the opposite of that. When unconsciously influenced by it, it produces a constant inner agitation when we look at craving and clinging and wanting, and we turn away from the object that it's going after, and we turn our minds towards what's going on inside, we we come across, we see very honestly this 
existential kind of inner turmoil. That's what we open to when we come to a retreat like this. At the same time, we learn skill sets that uh, learn how to be able to open to it in a balanced way and be able to, where we're able to understand it very deeply and um, go in another direction, not get caught by it over and over again. The Buddha's teaching began because of his great compassion in seeing this about himself, about how human nature is. The pursuit of happiness by means of endless obsessive obtaining and attaining is not really the pursuit of happiness. When we look at it deeply, it's the pursuit of suffering when we follow the way of the world. So our practice here has been to investigate, as Steve talked about last night, to investigate this truth of suffering. How does it come about? What is the cause of suffering? How can it come to an end? What are the ways that we can bring it, the suffering, to an end? So for most of us, or all of us probably here involved in the Dhamma, when we're given these protective conditions, we understand deeply that happiness really uh, comes from letting go. It comes from relinquishing. It comes from renouncing. And the basic renunciation is the renunciation of greed, of hatred, of delusion in its various forms. We come to see that very closely and more and more closely in the moments of mindful awareness that we bring to whatever is happening, whatever challenges are going on, whatever um, suffering we Uh, experience in our practice here. We come to see it even in the pleasant experience, as Steve spoke about last night, when pleasant experience arises, there's the agitation of wanting to hang on to it. And when it goes, of course, there's a disappointment of its going. And we unconsciously, if we're not aware, we do everything we can to experience it again. And so there's this constant running after uh, this happiness through trying to experience over and over again pleasant feeling or running away from unpleasant feeling. This is samsara. This is the, the wheel of suffering. We come to understand that The renunciation of that comes about through strong moments of mindfulness. When mindful awareness is really strong, uh, wisdom arises. Uh, The understanding of that this moment is really impermanent becomes very, very clear when mindful awareness is there. The understanding that there is no solid sense of I that's created in this moment becomes very, very clear. The understanding that holding on to any moment at all or any experience at all doesn't lead to ultimate and permanent kind of happiness. So wisdom begins to arise 
wisdom begins to grow, begins to deepen in our practice. It's said that Upandita, our teacher, used to say that when greed, hatred, and delusion are absent because of the strong presence of mindful awareness, it's really a mini enlightenment. It's a moment when there is the freedom of that greed, of hatred, of delusion. There's a clarity of seeing, understanding that moment. There's the absence of wanting anything because there's a deep knowing that everything is passing away. And of course, the opposite of that is pushing away anything that's unpleasant. That, that kind of hatred or ill will, it doesn't make sense in those moments. And so when that happens over and over again, this becomes the wholesome habit of the mind to constantly let go, let go, let go, let go, let go. Times when I've come into uh, interview or check-ins with my teacher, um, Manindraji, and he would sometimes say just that. Whatever was happening, he would just say, let go, let go, let go, let go. See deeply the truth of impermanence in this moment. And I remember times when that would be all he would say, not much more. When that letting go, when that renunciation is really happening because mindfulness is so strong, there's a lightness in the mind, there's an openness, there's a malleability, a flexibility in the mind. It's soft, it's clear, there's a deep acceptance, an inner honesty that can be with whatever is happening, not push it away because it's too uncomfortable to bear or that we can't relate to that as part of ourselves. And when this is happening, it develops that very um, strong kind of confidence that we have, that we're able to face anything in practice, and that, that ability to, to let go, to let go, or to see that everything's impermanent anyway. Uh, this is a very deep kind of renunciation. Suzuki Roshi is, it has uh, said, renunciation isn't giving up the things of this world. It just understands that everything goes away by itself. Whether it's this moment or this life. So the mind and heart stay confidently quiet, ardent about practice in retreat and out of retreat. We're able to see this more and more deeply, more and more consistently, more and more strongly as we continue on our path with our practice. We open to the truth of how it is. Um, Sometimes it's harder because of various uh, psychophysical knots that we carry or karmic knots that we carry. Sometimes it's easier But the more we open to and face what's happening and see that deep impermanence, that that deep renunciation um, is a strength to us. So that's the kind of happiness that we're developing here, that deep kind of happiness that some people call that unconditional kind of happiness. 
I call it uh, a happiness that would lead to the unconditioned, a deep trusting in the truth of how things are. There is a great security in that letting go. Sometimes we may feel on the path that that kind of letting go is um, will, will lend itself to a kind of wobbliness in our practice, to a kind of vulnerability in our practice. And indeed, that is so, that we do fee- feel vulnerable. But we come uh, to be more and more attuned to that vulnerability and see that sometimes that vulnerability, and actually on a very deep level, there's a strength to that vulnerability. We begin to live in alignment with the truth that uh, sometimes the word for suffering is vulnerable, the truth of the vulnerability of life, the truth of how it is. That kind of renunciation, renouncing how we've thought in the past that everything has to feel like solid ground, that we can't open to, that everything is passing away because we need it to be solid. We renounce that ignorance. We renounce seeing that in the old way of seeing it wrongly or not seeing it clearly. That kind of deep renunciation takes place. In the Sutta Nipata, the Buddha, um, there's a quote there by the Buddha, I have seen the misery of attachment to pleasure and by extension, aversion to what's unpleasant. Those are my words. I have seen the security involved in renunciation. And so not needing to run after what's pleasant all the time, of course, totally experiencing it when pleasant uh, events or pleasant experiences arise. But there's a much deeper happiness that comes from letting go, not needing to run after pleasant experiences all the time, seeing the vulnerability of life. It's also said in the Dhammapada, if by giving up a lesser happiness, one gains a greater happiness than a wise person would renounce the lesser to behold the greater. And I remember the time when this really pierced me um, like an arrow and opened my heart in a different way when I was practicing. I took some time to practice in Burma. And it was the first time I um, went away to another country, actually, for that long. And so... I was getting homesick, which is the primary defilement for me, homesickness, wanting to be home, being, um, wanting to be around family and, and children and friends, that kind of you know, attachment to that pleasure. And I really had to see through that. I really had to work with that, that the mind would think about it all the time, would and, and conjure up ways to get out of that retreat that I was in in Burma. Um, what excuses would I come up with? You know, coming to my interview and uh, saying something to my teacher that I really need to get home because the body is like this or because my children need me or something's going on where it's better to go home than to stay here. 
And there was a particularly uh, difficult time when I walked in to the interview with Seda Upandita. And those of us who practice with him will know or can know that it's as if he can kind of read your mind. And he knows what's happening more than you do, in a way. He is just has this um, precision and shrewdness and that kind of deep, deep seeing into the truth of seeing how it is in the way that you walk or seeing how it is in the look in your face or um, whatever little words you're putting out because you had to report very, very briefly. He would always say short and to the point. You know, when you went in, not always, but he would ask you to report in that way. And um, so I was walking in and just, you know, you walk in with your hands together and um, he watches you as you walk in. A lot of his understanding about what's going on with your practice is just noticing how mindful you are. And so in the walking in to... um, do the report, and then there's a a mat on the floor where the yogi can uh, kneel down and then do the bows. And so as I was doing, uh, walking in and then doing the bows, he was was saying something in Pali, kind of a chant. And then I didn't exactly know what he was saying, but it was not the usual way that he would sort of start his interview with me. And then the nun, and that was that Makamalinyani, who was the interpreter at that time for my interviews, would um, said this to me in English. Said, "Seidao is saying to you, uh, Ji is saying to you, if by giving up a lesser happiness, one gains a greater happiness, then a wise person would renounce the lesser to behold the greater." And then Upandita said. Which is the greater happiness? He would always kind of ask questions of you to bring out the, the wisdom of your own heart. And of course, I had to say, well, of course, Sayadawji, it's staying here. And uh, I was thinking I needed to go home. And he, he sort of could read that in between the lines or the look on my face that maybe I had a little troubled look about being there in another month. So uh, surely it, it, it was true, certainly it was true that by being able to stay and actually seeing that deep attachment that I had to being home, being a mother, being uh, attachment to that kind of pleasure of being in that kind of life, um, I really let go of a lot during that practice. So it's not about giving up pleasant experience, of course. Eventually, I did go home, and and I have a lovely and and fulfilling relationship with my family. And whenever pleasant experience arises, there is a total enjoyment of it, a total experience of it. But there's a deep knowing that this doesn't last, that it comes out of conditions. And of course, I can be part of creating those conditions. And, uh, but there's no sense chasing after them. Um, the attachment to them, the clinging to them, is what is the cause of great suffering. 
So renunciation, a great way that we can bring our practice home to see for ourselves what places in our lives are uh, we attached to. Um, What places in our lives can we bring more renunciation? And to really work on that in a conscious way. I grounded this practice of renunciation with the paramis, with that understanding of what is gained, you know, when we give up something. And I'll give some examples of that. For example, when we give up, uh, uh, when we practice generosity, we give up stinginess. We give up um, that kind of attachment uh, to what we have. And when we give up, for example, uh, harming others, we gain the beautiful aspect of living in harmony. So this really isn't a difficult practice when you look at all the ways that it's possible to see what we can gain through what we're giving up. I didn't know this, but I had often heard from Steve uh, when he talked about people in Burma, because he was a monk in Burma for five years, that there are a number of people in Burma that when they uh, do their practice, they think about taking some time of intensive practice during the year, maybe a month or two months, and even sometimes they can uh, take up the robes, and they can renounce in that way, they can go to a monastery, become a, a monk or a nun temporarily. And they might do that for a short period, a month or two, which is kind of longer than what we might think of in the West, of taking up uh, some time of renunciation like that in retreat. But that's uh, kind of natural for them. And the rest of the year, they work on the paramis, on developing the strength of the paramis in their daily life. They understand that these are very wholesome states of mind, and that by developing the paramis, they're also giving up the opposite of them. And I'll mention them in a moment. They understand that they can arouse the energy to... um, to develop the paramis when it's, those paramis aren't present. When, for example, there is a possibility to give something and then we, we're, we're not feeling that uh, energy to give, sometimes it takes a little pondering on that. Well, maybe this is a good moment to practice generosity. And so they arouse that energy. And when the energy is already there to practice any one of the paramis, when, for example, we, we uh, want to practice non-harming and we see that already our mind is there to, to not harm, to relinquish harming something through our speech or through our behavior, when that is already there, we nurture it, we feed it. And so this very much encouraged me, it very much inspired me when I saw how this was, how they, when I went to Burma, how they actually were like that. It just wasn't a a story that 
or a theory. It, it was something real that I came to see by knowing the people there. So as you go back into your daily life, you can see that these wholesome forces that are already in the mind can be strengthened through practice by recognizing them, by arousing the energy to develop them when they're not there, by nurturing them when you see that they're already there, they're already present in your mind stream. Um, Paramis means uh, one of the descriptions or um, definitions of paramis means noble becoming. And when I read that, I really liked that description because a lot of times I heard that the paramis were all about what the Buddha perfected in order to become a Buddha. And many times I would hear that and I would think, I'm not, I don't really have this aspiration to become a Buddha. You know, and it, it's too kind of far-fetched for me to think that I'm going to perfect all of these paramis. I can do better and better at them, but to perfect them, that's too much striving for me. That's too much of a far um, goal for me. I, I like to be able to accept the places where I fumble up and I'm not always perfect, and that's a big part of my practice, that kind of acceptance. But I like this word noble becoming because as a human being, I'm happy to work on just becoming more and more noble, to understand that that's part of, of my uh, life, my aspiration is to become a more and more noble being. So here are the ten paramis, and tomorrow you're going to be getting a list of these paramis as kind of a your graduation certificate, um, <laughs> because many of these have been developed just as you have been doing your practice here. They've been very naturally developed. So the first parami is generosity, and I spoke about that at length uh, this afternoon. When we consciously cultivate generosity, we give up greed. And this is quite automatic when this happens, the renunciation of greed. And the second one is the cultivation of morality or living in harmony. When we're conscious about living in harmony uh, with the various precepts, we renounce greed, hatred, and delusion uh, with various of them, and uh, just making that more conscious in our lives, we really give up uh, harming ourselves, harming one another. And then there's renunciation itself. Uh, That's the third parami. I'd like to pause here to fill this one out because it's a part of the theme of this talk. Renunciation is not so inviting to explore. So I'd been thinking about giving a talk on this for a long time, but it's hard for us in the West a lot to think about renunciation. And so that's why I thought of coupling it with the paramis. In my Dharma reading, of course, you know, everything that I read becomes part of the Dharma. See, you see greed, hatred, and delusion, or 
non-greed, non-hatred, and non-delusion in everything that we can read or come across. But there was this one cartoon strip, um, Hagar the Horrible, and oftentimes in the cartoon strips I find some of the most profound dharma and um, just kind of wanting to meet this person who, who writes this cartoon strip, actually. So there are four frames in this particular cartoon strip, and you can just imagine for yourself each frame. In the first frame, this Hagar, uh, the horrible he's called, is climbing up a steep mountain. And it's very, very steep, and you just see him in this frame on this steep incline, and he's huffing and puffing away. And in the second frame, he finally gets to the top, and he meets up with this sage with a long white beard, and the sage is sitting cross-legged at the very peak of this mountaintop. And Hagar says to him, O great sage, please tell me the secret of happiness. And in the third frame, the sage is responding to him. And he says this very, very straightforwardly. Simplicity, self-restraint, renunciation. And in the last frame, Hagar asks, Is there anybody else up here I can talk to? (laughs) We don't like that answer, usually. We we don't want that uh, kind of like. We want, you know, we we sort of live in this world that has a lot of obsessiveness, and um, we're greatly influenced by that. But actually, in coming to retreat, I know that each one of us in our own way is greatly affected by the simplicity and sees the beauty of that, the benefit of that. So the Pali word for renunciation is nekama, and I wanted to use the Pali word for this particular um, parami because its meaning um, has something that we can reflect on. Literally, it means to go forth, nekama. And it's used to describe a person's going forth when one goes into the renunciate life of in the monastery, one where one dons the robes, takes up being a bhikkhu, or takes up being a nun, a monk or a nun. And here in this Pali word, it's actually emphasizing what is gained by that rather than what is left behind, because when people take up the robes or go into a monastery, the very deep and and far-reaching aim for many people who do this is liberation, either total liberation or whatever liberation means to them, liberation of the various ways of suffering that they experience. So it's leaving behind that and gaining a deeper kind of happiness. It's not really about deprivation or exterminating something that is a great fulfillment to us like our friends because our friends are still there and maybe in our hearts they're there in a deeper way or our family. Um, The basic requisites of of living in in a monastery are very, very simple and that becomes so uh, deeply refreshing. There's a happiness of 
being in that kind of renunciation, living in simplicity like that. There's an ability to feel like you're deeply resting in life. When I um, joined, when I went to Burma, the very first time I went, it was um, a fulfillment of an aspiration that I had for a long time, even while I was a mother, and that was to become a nun. And I know that my conditions in life are not in such a way that I can totally leave my, my children and my grandchildren. It's not my choice to do that. It could be for some people who are mothers, and it has been, but that isn't my choice. But I did go to uh, become a nun for experiencing that kind of renunciation. What would it be like to experience that kind of renunciation? I had a deep curiosity about that. Would it really help my practice to let go very, very deeply? So there's a gain when we have this kind of experience of deep renunciation, of enjoying non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. And that was my experience when I was there. There was a very deep happiness to see the mind, moments of the mind that were free from greed, hatred, and delusion. So a little bit... um, more about renunciation. And then on with the other paramis. The fifth one after renunciation is energy. And when energy is gained, what is let go of is laziness, is the casualness that we uh, do our practice with. It's kind of a, a feeling of being able to stay with our practice moment by moment and uh, have it be consistent or as consistent as possible. That continuity that's so important is gained. Patience. It's said that patience is a supreme virtue when we uh, practice the renunciation of impatience. We gain that uh, deep support of patience. Our teacher used to say when the teacher could feel that there was some kind of frustration in our practice or, you know, impatience that he would see in myself that I wanted to go home, that wanted to give up already, that giving up mind. Um, He would say in Pali, and then it would be in English, that the road or path to liberation is paved with patience. Every step is important to include with patience. The seventh is truthfulness. Of course, when we give up untruthfulness, we gain the benefit of living in the atmosphere of truth, being able to hear the truth, being able to see the truth, being able to live in the truth of life. The eighth is resolution. Uh, It's the ability to make a resolve and actually fulfill it so that it's onward leading. And I'll tell some stories about that. When we feel that great resolution or resolve in our minds, in our hearts, then what we give up really is a lack of confidence in ourselves. The ninth is loving kindness. And of course, it 
it's obvious that when we renounce hatred, uh, loving-kindness is gained. When we work on loving-kindness, automatically uh, hatred is given up. And the last one is equanimity. With equanimity, we've been learning that we let go of reactivity. So this mindful practice that we, ha- that we can take home with us um, of living, uh, living in, in this place of seeing where we can let go, seeing by that letting go what we gain, it's, it's a very beautiful practice. As we get older, and you know, at least half of us in the room, or more than half, are in the time of our life when we start thinking about you know, what, what more time we have to live, and are we using our lives wisely? Are we using our energy wisely? And actually, the younger that we can uh, realize that, um, the better off we'll be. I remember that in my 20s that um, I started to think about this even in my 20s. At that time, I could even say about myself that I felt like my hair was on fire with the Dharma. I really wanted to understand how to come to the end of suffering. And it would be reflected back to me over and over again that use use each moment wisely and each moment is so precious. Any moment, uh, our life could be taken. And I truly, truly believe that. It helped to work in a cemetery to see that every day, you know, work uh, in the office of a cemetery in a mortuary. So when we see the body now, you know, for me, seeing the body just do its thing, gravity is, takes over, and, you know, the the smooth skin is not there anymore, and the hair is not so dark anymore, and uh, that's okay. The shininess of the body is, is, not, is going away, but the shininess of the heart is becoming more and more diamond-like. I can see in people who inspire me that um, working on the mind and the heart is more important at this time of our lives. When I went to um, Burma that time, the very first time, it was because I thought that I had to clean up my act. It was a juncture in my spiritual practice where I really looked at myself and how I was behaving and speaking and, and thinking in, in my life and, and really felt that I've got to take another step to really clean up my act. And when I went to Upandita for my first interview, he said, why are you here? And the first thing that came out was, I said, I wanted to clean my heart because I knew I could see more defilements there and more clearly, actually. So that um, it was really important to me to practice sila, in a deeper way, to practice uh, the precepts in a deeper way. So I took up that, uh, that form of renunciation where 
I ordained as a nun. And we take a few more uh, precepts of renunciation during that time. And I wanted to really experience that place of uh, feeling deeply protected by the precepts, feeling deeply protected that they were contained within this bigger safety container of the Dhamma. There were many times in my practice when I would bow to um, my teachers because I would so greatly respect that they had taken up the practice of sila with such great seriousness and sincerity. And I would see the carefulness, for example, that Upandita had with his words, he still has, and the other monks and nuns who, and, and lay people who have greatly inspired me, the carefulness they've had with their behavior, and the deep and um, profound training that they put themselves through to realign their thinking uh, with the understanding of the Dhamma. And so every time I made a prostration in front of any one of my teachers or people that I respected very deeply, that I would uh, really be prostrating the bowing to how uh, seriously they took up the precepts and um, how much deep gratitude I had for that. The commitment that I had, almost I could feel that it was rising to that level. And so taking up this sila, this um, uh, practice of really living in deep, deep harmony was um, a great protection to me. And when I did practice that, when I was in Burma and I ordained as a nun, I felt that simplicity of living in a way where my mind was clearer. There There were moments that, there were long moments of looking at the mind and seeing that there was an absence of greed and hatred, and there was clarity in the mind. And it was totally impersonal. It was just by doing this practice, there was that happiness of uh, having that kind of freedom, that happiness of really having a clean heart. And I could say in all sincerity that those couple of months that I spent there were the happiest time I've had as a human being of uh, deeply experiencing that. Connected to sila is that um, truthfulness, living in the truth, uh, really taking up uh, the renunciation of being careful of what we say so that we're not speaking an untruth in any way. So one of the things I remember when the Buddha talked to his son, Rahula, he said to his son, to be careful about um, speaking the truth, to not even speak uh, in jest so that it's somewhat of an untruth. Don't even kid about things, that it's so important to, um, to say the truth, that not even as a joke, do we use untruthfulness? I learned also that 
of all, uh, in all the practices of those beings who are becoming a Buddha, the bodhisattvas, that through their many births, through their many lives, as they're perfecting all of these paramis, which are sometimes called the perfections, they could bro- break every precept. You know, they could break the precept of, of non-killing. They would, there was, even in their lives as bodhisattvas, there would be killing, there would be stealing. But never, ever did they break the precept of, um, uh, of truthfulness. Of, they always, always spoke the truth. And so, you know, through my life as a, a yogi and continuing to be as a yogi, I came to really understand this when it was my first long retreat, long ago, um, many, many years ago. And I went to uh, Australia to do this long retreat. And Upandita was the teacher, and it was the first time that I met up with him. And we were reporting in small groups, as we did here in the beginning of this retreat. So we could hear the reports of others, and people would report about their practice. And so I, I was able to hear how people were doing, and I heard some people say that, they were able to be with the breath continuously without a break, and their, their mind wouldn't wander, and sometimes there would not be any thinking at all, and I was feeling worse and worse all the time. Like, you know, my practice was all over the place and feeling sleepy and all of that. But um, uh, these were the reports, you know, that they could do the sitting and walking for a long time, and That evening, Upandita gave a Dharma talk, and it was one of the first Dharma talks. And he said, today, something like this, I'm paraphrasing, he said, today I heard many of you say that you were doing this and doing that, that you could be with the breath, that you were sitting long periods of time. You were reporting practice um, that was hard to believe, basically. And he said, it's very important that you tell the truth and that you not only tell the truth, but that you are very precise about the truth you're telling. When you say how it was for you, be very, very precise about your practice to say exactly what's happening, not what you want to happen or think was happening or not because you want to impress me. And he said, How can you experience the truth if you cannot stand on the truth, if you cannot tell the truth? So tomorrow, I would like everybody that has not said the truth precisely, I would like you to come to my door and to say um, that you did not tell the truth and to uh, ask for forgiveness for that. Um, And so the next, I, I thought about my own did I say what was true for myself? And I reflect and I thought, well, I did. I, I don't have anything to regret about what I said. But I looked out the window when um, the next day and I saw, you know, quite a line of people <laughs> who needed to say to him what, and, and really it, it got them, it woke them up. It woke all of us up about how important it is to tell the truth 
heightened my awareness about that. After that, I was so precise about my um, report to him that it that precision in reporting to him really helped me to see what was going in my practice, going on in my practice more precisely, more clearly, and I really appreciated that. I even reported to him how many, not just hours I sat during the previous day, but to the minute. Uh, I, I would make reports like, yesterday I sat for eight hours and 23 minutes, and I walked for this many hours and this many minutes. And so I was really, I just watched the, the clock, and I really wanted to um, incline the mind towards that kind of precision to see clearly. So <clears throat> telling the truth is very, very important uh, in our practice. So those are some of the things in, in that uh, renunciation that we may want to look at in our life. Where are we not being clear about telling the truth, about saying what's, uh, saying what's clear in our minds? And where can we, what can we gain from that? We may even gain greater um, clarity about uh, living in the truth, how to live in the truth in our lives, how to uh, how to gain the truth in a very profound level. So there is this grouping about the effort uh, and energy and resolution and um, just that practice of making a resolve uh, has been important to me. In the last couple of years that I've practiced, Upandita has really um, helped me to develop resolution in my practice, to make a resolve for certain experiences in practice, and then to fulfill that resolve. And so this has been a strengthening to my confidence, to seeing that the, it's, it's possible to incline the mind to a certain place, and for the mind to actually experience that. For example, we have been learning every afternoon how to incline the mind towards equanimity, by reflecting on it, by, as, as I said, repeated to you what the Buddha has said, what a person reflects on over and over again, to that his or her mind will incline. But to see that it's possible is uh, a really important thing in our lives. I, by doing this resolution, in practice, I saw a lot of confidence came up in my own mind and heart about the confidence of really understanding deeply the truth, that possibility of that uh, complete liberation in this life. There are many ways that you, in our daily lives, we make resolve for, if you can just remember the resolve that you had to make in order to come to this retreat. Um, all the things that you made the resolve, the intention over and over again, and that you had to follow up with that and take action. The, in that first retreat that I went to in Australia, I had to make the resolve more than a year before that to go to a retreat. I had 
four children. The youngest one was four years old, and to take that time off was a hard thing for the whole family. And so I made the resolve way ahead of time. I had to save the money to pay the bills, to make you know those frozen dinners and put them in the freezer for them during you know, at least half of that time that I was gone to prepare the children for my being away. I wrote cards to them so that they, all ahead of time, so that they could be mailed, you know, to the children so that they would feel my connection with them. There was so much in following up with that resolve that I had to do. Um, And so that gave me great strength when I went to the retreat and I actually practiced, I already knew that there was confidence that anything that I inclined my mind to, that kind of resolve, intention, could be fulfilled. So that when we, we give up this lack of confidence in ourselves, and when we work on intention and resolve, these two things come together. We realize renunciation of something and the gaining of a parami that is a great support to us in our lives. <clears throat> so these are some of the paramis, some of the things that we gain uh, by giving up. We gain uh, confidence. We gain living in harmony. We gain um, living with a generous heart, feeling that sense of non-greed, non-attachment, non-clinging, which is really a great thing. Uh, We gain energy, the giving up of casualness, of laziness in our practice, in our daily practice. Um, That's been a great gain to me by understanding that I can uh, uh, have energy every day that even at advancing age, you know, it was a milestone for me to turn 60 last year. So to be able to say, I can have the energy to sit more during the day, to take more time in the year to do intensive practice. Um, I really saw how lazy I was becoming, how kind of resting on my laurels I had become, how casual I had become in my practice. And I had a a little more oomph to do more practice in my daily life. So what can each one of you uh, go home to really reflect on and see what, what can you take up as a renunciation? Or on the other hand, what of the paramis can you work on more and then automatically understand what is given up? So tomorrow we'll be handing out that, um, that certificate of graduation, which actually has all the paramis on it, where you can take a look at them and really see which ones you want to work on when you're at home. So I'd like to end with um, this. This is actually something that Seda Upandita wrote at the end of that very first retreat that I attended with him, that month-long retreat in Australia. And it's called Freedom. 
and it has a lot to do with um, with cultivating uh, these various paramis. Adorned with a garland of giving, feeling joy and dignity with kind living, dwell only in states of clarity, great beauty results with integrity. Adorned with a fragrance of virtuous activity, for others a care and sensitivity, dwell only in states of contentment, a heart removed of the thorns of resentment. Adorned with the sweetness of tranquility, rapture from a life of simplicity, dwell only in states of calm peace, mental turbulence and distraction will all cease. Dwell only in states of peace and happiness, a mind of wise discernment and openness. The three poisons of wrong view, conceit and craving, no longer hinder or cause inner tightening. Vow deeply to develop the true way, then adorned in the heart, freedom will lay. So let's sit for a moment. want to encourage you to keep the silence um, and to continue to go at a gentle pace. Thank you.